As you know, we're working through an end times event series of sermons. We have said that we live in a church age that began on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when the church was born and has carried forward to this point in time. We are still in the church age. I've made some comments that I believe we're near the end of the church age. I don't have a date for the rapture of the church that ends the church age, but I see the seasons in world history, anti-Semitism, the rise of the economic common union in Europe, uh, the Pope and others calling for a one worldwide religion. Many different things lead me to think that we may be near the end of the church age, which I've just said will end with the rapture return event of Jesus. He comes in Earth's atmosphere in the twinkling of an eye, gathers out the bodies of those who have trusted Christ as Savior in the church age, and then we who are alive and remain at that rapture return of Christ will be translated, caught up together to be with Christ in the air. And those are comforting prospects, we're told. After the rapture of the church, there's a seven-year period of time where there's action going on in heaven and there's action going on on earth. The action in heaven for the seven years is the judgment seat of Christ. We're all born-again believers individually stand before Jesus and he evaluates us. He evaluates us not for heaven or hell, that's been settled, but he evaluates us as to whether our good works done in his name on earth are rewardable in the coming kingdom or they are unrewardable. That's what's going on for seven years in heaven. Seven years on earth are called the tribulation, an unprecedented time of God's outpoured judgment, his holy wrath against evil and sin, Revelation chapters 4 through 19 is the tribulation events on the earth. The seven years of evaluation in heaven and tribulation on earth end with the second coming return of Christ, seven years previous the rapture return of Christ, and then the second coming where Christ comes slowly, visibly. All the world would see that the king has entered stage earth to set up his kingdom, a literal thousand-year kingdom where Satan is suppressed confined, arrested, incarcerated in a pit for 1,000 years, unable to deceive any for that 1,000-year period. After the 1,000 years are over, Christ releases Satan briefly. There's a final battle. Christ wins that battle by the word of his mouth. Then we have the great white throne judgment of all the unbelievers of all the ages of human history standing individually before Judge Jesus, sentenced to the lake of fire, conscious torment, in hell forever. There are degrees of punishment meted out by Jesus Christ based on the sin of each individual and that record of those deeds of unrighteousness are kept in Christ's books. After the great white throne judgment, the present earth and heaven are incinerated, burned up by God. God creates a new heaven and a new earth that will last forever. And those who know Christ before they leave earth through death or rapture, they know him as savior, We will enjoy Christ forever and ever in a beautiful uh, new heaven and a beautiful new earth that God will create. So that's what we've been teaching you. That's what we've been seeing in Scripture together. And as we come to this morning's message, we come to the second part of the study of the uh, millennium, the thousand-year kingdom of Christ on earth. We looked at that last week. If you missed the sermon, maybe you'll catch that on our church webpage so you could get uh, the full picture on the millennium and not just the second half that we're going to share with you this morning. By way of a quick review, we saw at least eight things last sermon on the millennium, and I'll review them very quickly. Number one, 
The millennium will be the answer to Jesus Christ's prayer to his heavenly Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Number two, we said the millennium will take a physical return of Jesus Christ to the earth in order for it to be set up. Number three, we saw that that return of Jesus Christ will look like Christ riding on a literal horse, accompanied by literal literal armies of angels and redeemed believers, and that return of Christ will look like Jesus winning the battle of Armageddon by the word of his mouth, and that return will look like Satan being arrested and banished to a jail called a dark pit or an abyss for 1,000 years. Fourth, last week we saw that the millennium will be a literal and on-the-earth kingdom. It will not merely be spiritual, and it will not merely be in the hearts of believers of Jesus. Number five, last week, it will be the wonderful time of God keeping all of his promises previously made to Israel. All the promises of the Old Testament that God made to the nation Israel, despite their spiritual harlotry and adulterating against God, all the promises, the covenantal promises of God made to Israel will be perfectly fulfilled in the coming kingdom. Number six, we saw that it ought to remind us as believers that Satan is currently on a tether. He can only do as much as God allows him to do in this church age. In the future millennium age, there will be a time when Satan will be confined by God and able to do on earth absolutely nothing. Seventh, we saw last time that the millennium demands a literal interpretation of the Bible verses that pertain to it. When the plain sense makes good sense about the prophecies of a future kingdom, seek no other sense or you'll be left with nonsense. And the last thing we saw last sermon is that the millennium shows us that God intends to keep every promise which he has made to Israel and this should cause us to take every promise made to the church to the bank. So that's a very quick review of last week's first sermon on the millennium, and now this second part sermon on the kingdom, I wanna preach under three headings. First, what? Second, why? And third, so what? What, why, and so what? Let's start with the what. The what of this kingdom is the unique and wonderful characteristics of this future millennium. I mentioned a handout last time with you, and I have it available again today if you, if you didn't get it. And it looks like uh, this. Where'd it go? Um, it lists many scriptures, many, here it is, about 100 scriptures on the future coming kingdom of Christ. I really would encourage you to take a copy, study at this out, read it over, consider it and ponder it. There's no possible way that these 100 plus references are going to be fulfilled just in your heart or mine. It's gonna take the literal King Jesus establishing his literal thousand year kingdom on the earth. Uh, These uh, verses will also be in due time up on our church webpage in conjunction with this particular sermon video. You can get a copy of these on your way out on the table in the foyer if you so wish. What I wanna do in this what section of our sermon this morning, though, is to just 
race through some headings that are on this handout. There are scriptural references, many, that back up everything I'm gonna share with you in a very fast manner. So what is the what of this unique and wonderful coming kingdom and millennium? Very quickly, the characteristics of the millennium. It will fulfill God's covenant promises, the Abrahamic, Davidic, Palestinian, and New Covenants. The kingdom will display the divine righteousness because Satan will be bound. It will serve as God's final test of fallen humanity under ideal earthly conditions. The millennium will manifest Christ in all of his power and beauty. Some of the names that are ascribed to King Jesus in this period of his kingdom are the Lord of hosts, the Ancient of Days, the Most High, the Servant, the King, the Judge, the Lawgiver, Messiah, the Prince, the Wall Breaker, the Lord, our Righteousness. Some of the millennial ministries that are ascribed to Jesus Christ would be, he will possess the land. He will assume the Davidic throne and rule earth. He will execute judgment. He will do the work of the Redeemer. He will teach. He will give law. He will shepherd. He will govern. This future millennial kingdom will manifest Christ in all of his glory and deity, namely his omniscience, his omnipotence. He will be worshiped as God. His divine mercy will be evident for the world. His will will, he will reveal God's will rather, and he will reveal God's holiness. What a kingdom it's going to be. This kingdom will have a spiritual character. It will inaugurate perfect conditions on earth. Peace, joy, holiness, glory, comfort, justice, full knowledge, instruction, removal of the curse on creation, removal of sickness and death except as punishment for overt sin, healing of deformities, protection of life, freedom from oppression, longevity and wholeness of life. Lifespan will be lengthened greatly to what it is in this age. Going on. The millennium will be a time of the reproduction of children, those who will need to be saved that are born during the millennium. Meaningful labor, economic prosperity, increased solar and lunar light, unified language on earth, unified worship, manifest presence of, and fellowship with God. It's going to be quite a thing. A theocracy, God ruling planet earth. Not democracy, theocracy. The resurrected David will serve as Christ's regent. Resurrected saints will have positions of responsibility as a reward. Christ's rule will be, will be inflexible with respect to justice and righteousness. Israelites will be Christ's subjects and witnesses. Gentiles will be Christ's subjects and Israel's servants. Jerusalem will be at the center of this kingdom. Palestine will be the Jews' inheritance. Palestine will be enlarged. Palestine's geography and topography will be greatly altered. The temple will facilitate worship, and a new system of sacrifices, memorial in their nature, will be established. This can't all happen in your heart. This is King Jesus literally returning, literally setting up a literal thousand-year kingdom on the earth with these qualities that you could get the handout and Read all the scripture verses if you aren't so inclined. The summary remarks about the what of the millennium would be these. The magnificent age just described is not being realized more and more at this time in the church age. 
Therefore, the biblical data does not argue for the post-millennial position, the position that if we just evangelize the earth thoroughly in the church age, then Christ will set up a kingdom. Second, the magnificent age described is not able to be realized in the hearts of redeemed people only. Therefore, the biblical data does not argue for an amillennial position, the position that there'll be no literal on earth kingdom of Christ, but the position that I do not hold, that Christ's only kingdom will be in the believer's hearts. Number three, this magnificent age coming is only able to be realized in a yet future time. And therefore, the biblical data does argue for a pre-millennial position, a position that the second coming of Christ's timing will precede the beginning of a thousand-year kingdom. So that is the what of the millennium. Let's go on to Roman numeral two, which is the why. Why would God ordain these things? Why would God ordain that after a church age, after a rapture, after a beam of judgment seat of Christ and a tribulation on earth, why would God ordain that after a second coming of his son back to earth that there be such a kingdom? What is God's purpose or what are God's purposes for this real kingdom of Christ on the earth? I think of at least four reasons. Number one, the millennium will prove that God is the perfect promise keeper when he totally fulfills all of the covenantal promises previously made to Israel, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, and the new covenant. God wills a literal kingdom for his son to show decisively, irrefutably, that he is a promise-keeping God. That God would keep promises to Israel means he'll keep promises to the church. He'll keep promises to you. The second reason for such a literal coming kingdom, I believe, is the massive rebellion against Christ at the end of the 1,000 years of Jesus Christ's rule, led by a freshly released Satan, will prove something. It will prove that the real problem is the heart, not the economy heart, not the educational system, the heart. The real problem is not the broken down family, although that is a problem. The real problem is the heart. Because think of it, for a thousand years, Jesus Christ will suppress evil. Jesus Christ will have imprisoned Satan so he can't deceive anyone for those thousand years. And yet there would be rebels against Christ in that thousand year kingdom, evidencing that the problem is the heart. The heart of the problem is the heart. The heart of my problem is my heart. The heart of your problems are your hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 is going to be proven decisively to be true in the future kingdom when Jeremiah the prophet, centuries before Jesus said, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Implication being, my heart is so wicked and so desperately wicked that I can't even understand my own heart. And neither can you. We've been given a new heart. 
in salvation, but we have an old man or woman that crawls out of the grave all the time, wreaking havoc in our thought life, our speech, our actions. So the future thousand-year kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth will prove decisively that the problem that is at the root of all of our sinning as a human race doesn't have everything to do with our environment. It instead has everything to do with our hearts. The fact that ready rebellion against Jesus at the end of the millennium when Satan is released by persons now who have been born virtually into a perfect world will show that all human babies are in fact born totally depraved with a bent to rebel against the Lord, born with a sin nature. This is what the psalmist David wrote in his great psalm of confession after sin with Bathsheba, he said to God in prayer in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David was not confessing to God that marital relations between a husband and a wife are in any way sinful. Rather, what he was confessing to a holy God was he recognized from the point of his conception and gestation in his mother's womb. He came with a bent to go it alone against God, to do it his way and not God's way, to sin. And so it is for all of us. The only human born without a sin nature is the God-man, the incarnate Christ, the virgin-born Savior. Every other human born with a total depravity, born as bad off before God as a person could possibly be. There's a third reason I believe that God would will a millennial kingdom and reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, and it is this. At the conclusion of the millennium, when Christ defeats a released Satan in a final battle, it proves that Christ wins out over Satan when the playing field is level. In other words, Christ's final defeat of Satan leaves no one on earth able to allege, well, Jesus is only stronger over an imprisoned Satan. No one can say that with any accuracy or fairness. Satan is going to be released under the will of Jesus Christ, and there's going to be one final heavyweight championship of the universe, a level playing field, and King Jesus will defeat Satan by the word of his mouth and he'll be banished to the lake of fire hell forever. Not a thousand year confinement, now a forever and ever confinement. There's a fourth reason I believe that there'll be a thousand year millennial kingdom of Christ on earth and it is this, the millennial conditions which I alluded to in the first part of this sermon, all those qualities and conditions on earth during the millennium, those conditions on earth prove that God always finishes well what he starts. If you come to my office, you'll see little piles of books on the floor behind my desk, little piles of paper, because I don't always finish well what I start. Sometimes I start a project and I get distracted or I get bored and I don't always finish my projects. God is not that way. 
Whatever project your God starts, he always finishes and he finishes it well. What are some jobs that God has started that he is going to finish well? Creation, the covenants, salvation, the curse being eradicated, Jerusalem, the animal blood sacrifice system, the Jews' temple, the church age. What are projects that God has started that he will certainly finish and finish well? The vindication of the righteous, judgment against sin, the New Testament's promised rewards for believers, and the glorification of every believer in Christ that we each would be made to be like Jesus when we see him face to face, either through the rapture of the church or at the times of our physical deaths. God always finishes what he starts, and God always finishes what he starts well, completely. Philippians 1.6 one day will be sight for you and not just faith or hope. Listen to Philippians 1.6, that one day will be sight to you. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You're gonna see that. No more flesh to contend with. No more depraved, fallen nature to deal with. No more disappointing God. No more sinning. No more illness, no more weakness, no more aging. It's a fact that God finishes well everything which he starts. And the millennium is one way that this truth will be proven to all persons who are alive at its time. In bringing this sermon on the millennial thousand-year kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth to an end, let me remind us in general terms of what we've seen. First, the what's of the millennium a big long list of biblical kingdom predictions and descriptions that I read to you very quickly. Get a handout in the foyer afterwards if you're interested to study it out for yourself. Number two, we've seen some of the whys of the millennium, why there will be such a kingdom. Four reasons we've covered. Now we have one more point, a third point, and it is the so what point. Okay, Bible teaches there's a second coming event of Christ that kicks off a literal thousand-year kingdom of King Jesus on the earth with magnificent changes to earth, changes to human hearts, changes to human lifespan. We know that now, so what? Does it make a difference? Does it change how we believe? Does it change how we decide? Does it change how we spend money? Does it change how we raise our children? So what? Six so what's, you ready? Number one, here comes the judge. Here comes the judge. The Lord Jesus will one day judge all sin which hasn't been covered at the cross. Bad guys won't always run seemingly free, seemingly getting the upper hand. If the Lord can wait, church, to judge, if the Lord can wait to judge, we should wait to let him judge the sin in the world that we are so impatient over. Here comes the judge. Number two, the whole story isn't told yet. The whole story isn't told yet. So don't be discouraged. Wrongs will be set right. 
And don't be fearful. All true believers will get safely home. And don't be angry. Jesus and not Satan will get the last say. Don't be angry. Jesus gets the last say. Number three, I can understand. Rejoice that you can understand the Bible. It isn't some secret code. It's a revelation and not a concealment. Take the Bible at face value. The Bible is not a big puzzle filled with difficult symbols and hidden meanings, and only highly trained, intelligent persons can figure out the Bible. Don't believe that. Satan wants you to believe that. Satan wants you to fold your Bible this afternoon, not open it again till Sunday morning, because he's convinced you you can't understand it. That's a lie. You can understand it. The author of it lives in you if you're saved. So I can understand. Rejoice that you can understand the Bible. Rejoice that the Holy Spirit who authored the Bible actually lives inside you, and he's promised to help you understand what's written in the Bible. Just ask him. When you open God's word each day, before you read it, ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes of understanding, your mind to understand what you're reading. There was an academic doctor, a professor at a college, who was uh, rather fond of his mother's son, if you know what I mean. He was rather arrogant. And he walked into the college one day, and he saw a humble, hardworking janitor taking his break, reading the Bible. And the professor said to him, do you understand that? And the janitor said, not all of it, but I've read the end and I know Jesus wins. I've read the end and I know that Jesus wins. Fourth takeaway, I'm a stakeholder. I'm a stakeholder. The, the coming of a real kingdom means that you can live faithfully now and expect a reward of inheriting a part of that kingdom. Positions of delegated authority under Christ over certain cities or areas in the worldwide kingdom of Christ. You can say, I'm a stakeholder. Number five, the heart is the heart of the problem. Only Jesus Christ only God's grace, only the workings of the Holy Spirit can make a dead and evil heart alive and righteous. And so we share the way of salvation often. This past Monday, we, this church was packed with uh, upper echelon police officers and a lot of kids that are going to the Royal Bahamian Police Force summer camp. And they asked to come to our building and to have a worship service to kick off the summer camp for underprivileged or at-risk youth. Pastor Nicholas Rogers, our youth pastor, did a wonderful job of presenting God's word and a challenge to everyone present based on Daniel's story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The only hope for all those children assembled here on Monday, the only hope for all the commissioner of police and everyone under him that was here the only hope for you and the only hope for me, the only hope for NASA, the only hope for the Bahamas, the only hope for the world is Christ. So tell of his excellence. Share his way of salvation in humility, in prayer, in love.
God forbid that we would just know the truth and stuff it into our heart and lock our mouths and never say anything. Sixth and last takeaway, the king is coming. The king is coming. No human politician can be our answer. We're not needing a monarchy or even a democracy. We need and expect a theocracy. And until theocracy does arrive, let's each of us live under the lordship of Jesus. I've told you before, if you write on a piece of paper, no and Lord, you are going to test yourself very practically. If you can say or are saying no to Jesus Christ's will for you in any manner or respect, he is not your Lord. Because no and Lord don't go together. If you are saying no to him, then you can't say, I'm living with him as my Lord. You're not. When you say Lord to Jesus, it takes no to Jesus off the table. Where would you be? Do you want to be here? You identify with the Holy Spirit's help this morning, what you're saying no to Jesus about, and repent. Stop saying no in favor of saying yes. Lord, my life's a blank check. You spend me any way you want. Everything I have, all that I am, all that I ever hope to be is yours. Do with me as you please. There's a freedom in that. There's a joy in that. There's an excitement in that. There's a fulfillment in that. There's an abundance of life in that. Oh, I urge you Christians who are here this morning having said no to Jesus in anything to repent and say, yes, Lord, yes. Any place, any time, anywhere. Lord, thank you for the coming kingdom. Thank you that on earth one day, your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, completely, immediately, gladly, and gloriously. In the meanwhile, may your will be done in each of our hearts and lives in the same manner. Move us off of saying no to you in any way to saying yes to you in every way. For your honor and glory and also for our good. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.